Thank you for listening to the GSC Podcast. The following audio was recorded at the 2022 Gathered and Scattered Conference at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Detroit, Michigan. So good to be with you, and as John said, I'm, I'm been wonderful to be here. I didn't realize until they asked the question yesterday that I, I guess I hadn't preached in Michigan since I left in 2017. So thank you for having me back here in the great Mitten State. You'll be glad to know that these three messages that I've done comprise 16 pages of notes. The first sermon had eight pages, the second sermon had five pages, and this sermon has three pages. So I can't promise how short, much shorter it will be, and you may fear, well, you really don't have anything to say in this last message. But we are moving now to what I hope will be very theological, you're going to find that, exegetical, you'll find it, and practical for you as you help people, and let's be honest, also for us, because the title of this message is relevant, not just as we scatter and try to engage with the world, but for each one of us. The question is very simply, how do people change? Remember when you graduated from high school, and my kids' high school has yearbooks, and yours probably had a yearbook. Jenison Public High School, class of 1995, that's me. We had a yearbook, and I don't know if kids still do this. My kids haven't, but maybe it was a, a Michigan thing. Everyone went around when I was in high school, and every, the thing to do was to sign your yearbook. And I need all my friends, and sometimes they'd leave a message, and they would say in your, especially your senior yearbook, really profound things like, have a great summer, stay in touch. Some people would put the acronym L-Y-L-A-S, love you like a sister, which hopefully they didn't put to me. Friends forever, it was great sitting next to you in math class and hopefully not cheating after you in math class. And here's the one that I found people writing in their yearbook. Don't ever change. Of all the rotten advice to give an (laughs) 18-year-old. No, it really should say, enjoyed being friends, whatever you do, I hope you change a lot. But people would write, don't ever change. We do change. We all change. Hair, weight, looks. You learn new things. You meet new people. You go to different places. You can't not change. As Christians, we are all about change for the better, to become more like Christ, to leave the old man behind and grow in virtue, holiness, and in maturity. But how do people change? There's lots of books on that, plenty of books, classes, self-help section in a library, bookstore. 
There are many people who now even question, is it really possible to change or are we just putting window dressing on parts of our personality that will never change? I recently entered how do people change into Google to see what would turn up. And surprisingly, the first page was full of links asking whether people really can change. From a site, BetterHelp, it said, can people change or is someone stuck? Healthline, can people change and look at what's realistic? From Psych Central, can people really change? From Very Well Mind, can people really change? From Quora, can people really change or do they simply modify their behavior to suit certain situations? People are questioning not just how to do it, but whether it is even possible to actually become a different person. Hopefully, I don't need to convince you as a Christian that we, of all people, believe in change. Not that every aspect of our personality would or could or even would be desirable to change. Certain things are, we might say, hardwired. Change is not what leads us to grace. That's not the gospel. Clean yourself up, become different, God will love you. But grace does lead to change. We are transformed, 2 Corinthians 3, from one degree of glory to the next. We put to death the old man. We put off the self, the old self. So how do we change? There's lots we could say. We could talk about the power of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit, the communion of the saints, the word of God. Let me try to make this very simple and give you one concrete step you must take and you must help other people take if you are to change. Here it is. If you want to change, you must own your mistakes. Or let's put it in more Christian terms. You and I must own our sins. I was just talking to someone about evangelism, workplace, engagement, and I was reminded of Mark Dever, who has uh, written a book on evangelism and is a very good personal evangelist, much better than I am. And it always stuck with me, Mark said, the singular thing he prays in doing personal evangelism is that the person he's talking to would come to a conviction of sin. Because you can have all of the apologetic smarts and you can know all the reasons to believe and you can build the right walls and build the right bridges, but unless the person comes to a sense, I'm not right, I have sins and I need a savior, then we don't have good news to offer. And it's true not just for the non-Christian, but for the Christian. You don't change unless you are willing to own your mistakes, to own your sin. I want to show you this in a way that I imagine none of you have seen before. And just to give credit where credit is due, I first saw this in an academic journal of all places. There was an article, and I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis if you're not there already. There was an article by Alex Lee and Jeffrey Harper in the Tyndale Bulletin in 2019 called Dodging the Question. And it was a look at this repeated question in the book of Genesis. 
There's a lot of ways to talk about the overarching theme of Genesis. It's a book about divine promise. It's a book about blessing. It's a book about providence. One of the other ways you can tell the story of Genesis is a story of brotherly conflict. Because Genesis starts and ends with the story of fraternal fighting. You start, what's the very first story after Genesis 1 through 3 and you get the fall? You got Cain and Abel. So after Genesis 1 through 3, creation and fall, the first story is brothers fighting. The last story, which takes up almost a fourth of the book, which the story of Joseph, is brothers fighting, family conflict. The one at the beginning of the book ends in murder and death and exile for Cain. The other story with Joseph and his brothers ends in confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And what's the difference? The difference is in owning your sin. But the pattern is even bigger than that. And this is what I saw in this journal article. Eight times in Genesis, we have this formula, and we're, just, we're gonna do an old-fashioned Bible study here in just a minute, and we're gonna, I'm gonna show this to you. The Hebrew formula is mazot azith. You can transliterate it, M-A-H-Z-O-T-H, new word, A-S-I-T-H, mazot azith. It means, what have you done? Or, what is this you have done? This question, Mazot Azith occurs eight times in the book of Genesis. What have you done? And we'll walk through this in just a moment. And once you see it, I think you'll agree, this isn't just some smart people sitting around needing something to write about. This is an unmistakable pattern in the book of Genesis. God's people are asked seven times, what have you done? And seven times, they do not respond in the right way. And then the eighth time, the same question, mazot azit, is asked, and in the eighth occasion, they respond appropriately. And just to talk about numbers for a moment, you all understand that the number seven is a biblical number, and isn't that the Bible has secret codes, and you find all the sevens and put them together, and it tells you what Nicolas Cage is going to do or something... But seven is a number of completion, of perfection, it's a number of the days of the week, and there's lots of sevens in the Bible. I hope you also realize that eight is the number of new birth, new creation, recreation. Boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day. How many persons were in the ark? Eight people were in the ark as they moved from the world that then was deluged by the flood to the new creation, as it were, eight people. Jesus was resurrected, the gospels even say, on the sabbaton plus one, on the week plus one. He was resurrected on the eighth day, you could almost say. Eight is the number of recreation. And so it may even be significant that we have eight times this question is asked, and only on the eighth time, finally, do God's people answer it correctly. Let me show you then what I mean. Look first at Genesis 3.13. We will move through these quickly. The story of the fall, 
And God comes in Genesis 3.13, the Lord God said to the woman, Mazot azit, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You could call this, to use some of the modern categories, blame shifting. Now, Adam does the same thing. He blames God for giving him Eve. Eve does it here. What have you done? The woman said, the serpent. So the first time this question is asked, God's people shift the blame. Someone else let me down. God presents to us our sin and we say, someone else treated me poorly. Someone else led me down this path. It's the person you gave me. It's the woman. It's the snake. It's someone else's fault. Second occasion. Turn to chapter 4, verse 10. This is with Cain and Abel. Verse 10, and the Lord said, Mazot Azith, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth. And then you find the continuing curse. And look at what Cain says in verse 13. My punishment is greater than I can bear. So if the first response, blame shifting, let's call this one complaining. Cain, what have you done? And Cain says, ah, I, I can't bear what you're doing to me, God. He's already lied when he said, I don't know where my brother is. And now Cain is angry, but we see up at verse 7, if you do well, you will, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have mastery, other words. In, in other words, Cain, I know you're angry about this, and you got a moment right here. You got a moment to, get, to check yourself before you wreck yourself. That's one of the lyrics from Cain West, I believe. <laughs> we're so close. We're just called Cain and Kev. It's just we're really tight. He's on the precipice, and of course, he chooses the wrong direction. And when God asks, what have you done, Cain complains. It's too much. You have done this to me. Third time, go to Genesis 12, 18. 12, 18. Pharaoh... This is when Abram and Sarai are in Egypt, and Abram lies about it. My wife's too good looking. She's not really my wife. And then almost turns into disaster, but God blesses him despite himself. But here's what Pharaoh says, Genesis 12, 18, called Abram and said, what is this you have done? Mazot azit. Why did you not tell me she was your wife? And we don't have a response, but what Pharaoh then says in verse 19 after he says, she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife, now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Abraham's simple response here when asked the question, what have you done, is to get up and walk away, to leave. Now, let me hasten to add in this whole exploration, it is possible that somebody can accuse you of something and accuse you of something false. The devil is an accuser. Other people can make allegations that we know are false, and sometimes the wise thing to do is, is to walk away. Paul and Barnabas had an argument, and they had to split for a time. 
But Abraham here has sinned, and he does not confess his sin. He does not return the dowry that was given to him. He is confronted by Pharaoh, what have you done? And Abraham, from what we can tell, just says, I'm through, I'm not listening, I don't want to deal with this, I leave. And that's another option when we're confronted with our sin. You might shift blame, you might complain, or you might just stick your hands in your ears. I'm not hearing it, I'm done with this conversation. Chapter 20, verse 9 Here's the fourth occasion we find this expression. Again, we have Abraham and Abimelech in one of these, one of three sister wives stories in Genesis, which are not the same story, but each one is telling us something different. Verse nine, then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, same question Pharaoh asked in chapter 12, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom this great sin. And then look, you have done to me things you ought not to have done. And Abraham, Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see? Why did you do this thing? Verse 11, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is ah, technically my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. What does Abraham do? Something all of us have done when confronted with sin. He rationalizes. Ah, why did I do this, Abimelech? Good question. But yeah, you know what what your people are like. What other choice did I have? I could have lost my neck over this. And yes, I said that she was my sister, and you thought I meant that she wasn't my wife, but you know, technically, technically, I never said that. You heard that. Isn't it frustrating? We all have those conversations with people. Isn't it frustrating that your spouse has that conversation with you where you're playing the technicality card? I didn't technically say, you asked me if I like the food. I made one little gagging noise and you jumped to conclusions. I didn't say, that's on you if you can't handle constructive criticism. We rationalize That's what Abram does. Here's the fifth occasion. Turn to 26, verse 10, and this brings us to the third of these sister wives' story, this time with Isaac and Abimelech. Abimelech was likely the name of the official, like Pharaoh, probably not the same Abimelech. Otherwise, you think, man, you got to stop falling for this, Abimelech, with all of these 80-year-old wives who still got it going on, and you're falling for it. But He says in verse 9, Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die. Abimelech said, Mazot Azith, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, would have brought guilt upon us. Abimelech warned all the people. And then the next we read, verse 12, Isaac sowed in the land and reaped. He makes some excuses, verse 7, they might kill me, verse 9, I might die. And then after being confronted by Abimelech with his sin, he listens and he says nothing. He gives the appearance of agreement. You ever talk to people and you're telling them something hard and they're nodding and they're giving every indication that they're really tracking with you and they go out and they do the exact same thing again. They're, 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 the words are coming in they're not really changing. 
And they're not really changing because they're listening to you, but they don't really agree with you. I have a good friend who says, Kevin, you are compliant but complaining. That is, Kevin, you, have, you, you, you will do the thing, but I can tell that you don't really want to do the thing. And uh, no, my wife didn't say that, but she could have said it to me, I'm sure. I roll up my sleeves and I do it, but I don't really agree. I'm compliant but complaining. Here we have Isaac. He's listening. He's not learning. What have you done? No recognition of sin. He goes about his business. No change. Six. Genesis 29, 25. and in the morning, this is when you have the sister switcheroo with Rachel and Leah. In the morning, behold, it was Leah, and Jacob said to Laban, because his father has done what no father sh- should do and trick and get him to sleep with the other sister. Laban is a trickster. And so Jacob asked to Laban, what is this you have done? to me. And then you notice what he says in response. It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn, complete the first week, and he goes on and explains what must take place. Laban is making excuses. He appeals to local custom. He says, you don't understand. This is just how everyone does things. And that's what we do sometimes when confronted with our sin. You don't understand. Everyone watches this show. You don't understand, everyone my age uses their phone in this way. You don't understand, every girl at school wears the skirt that short. You don't understand, everyone does it like this. That's essentially Laban's response when caught in his sin. And then the seventh occasion, turn to chapter 31, verse 26. Now this is where Jacob in turn, has found out how to get all the best of Laban's flock before he leaves. And so Laban said to him, Mazot, Azith, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly? And he goes on and on and asks why Jacob did these things. And you finally get to the answer in verse 36, then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. This is later after he searches for the household gods, which Rachel actually has. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin? Why have you hotly pursued me? In other words, what happens with Laban and Jacob is Jacob comes back with counter accusations. Rather than dealing with his own trickery and deception and sin, he comes back and he says, well, you're worse than me. Have you ever experienced this in your conflict? Rather than owning up to your sin, because in your fight, you think, well, I may be 20% at fault, but they're 80% at fault. And if I take 20% of the blame, they're going to ignore their 80%. So you come back with both barrels on their sin instead of looking at yours. We do this all the time. People do it to us. People quickly, when shown their offense, come back at you with all of your supposed offenses. This is why the people who most need to change have the hardest time changing. Because the sort of person that you can go to and you you say, brother, friend, I I, I just wanted to tell you something I'm, I'm seeing and just the way you interacted there and 
I, I think you made a mistake. The sort of person that we know is going to say, thank you, let me pray about that. Oh, I can't believe I did that, I'm sorry. That person has other people speak into their life and they change. But the one time you try that and the person comes back with you, when you tap them on their shoulder with their sin and they start you know, verbally pounding you with your supposed sins, you learn real quick, never talk to that person about their problems. And, and you are in a very dangerous place if that's you. And you, it's really dangerous because you don't know that that's you. No one dares to talk to you about your problems because whenever they try to do it, what do you want to talk about? All of their problems. That's Jacob and Laban in this circle. Presented with their sin, Jacob says, well, you, uh, look at you and all of your problems. Those are seven. Here's the last one then. And we don't have time to look at the whole chapter, so we'll just look at this occasion. And I'll presume that you know something about this Joseph story. The last one is Genesis 44, 15. So you can see from the heading of chapter 44, Joseph tests his brothers. Remember, they're jealous. Joseph gets the coat of many colors. They want to kill him. They decide, let's not kill him. We just throw him into this vat, and then we sell him to some Ishmaelite traders, and we lie to our father. Here's his coat. He was torn apart by wild beasts. But Joseph goes off to Egypt, and he rises through the ranks. He's slandered by Potiphar's wife. He goes to prison, but he's fruitful there. Eventually, he's elevated. He becomes second to only Pharaoh himself. He oversees the distribution of food during the famine. And so his long-lost family, and they think he's long gone and dead, now his brothers have come back, and they need food because there's famine in the region, and only Egypt, because of divine intervention and Joseph's ability, has food. And there's this interplay in all of these chapters here, back and forth of him testing his brothers and putting the goblet and go get your father, go get your brother. And here we are in the midst of it. He tests his brothers, Genesis 44. Pick up at verse 14. Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. He was still there. They fell before him to the ground. This is when they come back because the cup was found in Benjamin's sack and they were already going out on a limb to bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, because their father said, no, I can't stand to lose my other favorite son, Benjamin. You guys, whatever, go, but Benjamin, I, I can't stand it. And they said, no, we promise we will bring Benjamin back. And then lo and behold, when they leave, it looks like Benjamin somehow stole this golden cup. And so they come back, Joseph's testing them. And here's what he says in verse 15. What deed is this that you have done? Eighth time in Genesis, mazot azit. What is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Seven times in Genesis, this question has been asked. What have you done? And seven times, God's people have pointed fingers, shift blamed, walk away, complain, counter accusation. And now the eighth time, Notice what happens. Verse 16, and Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. 
Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it for me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And then Judah went up and said to him, O Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear. Let not your anger burn against your servant. And what follows is this long speech from Judah. And this has taken place very intentionally. Think of the connections. They sold Joseph for silver, and now Joseph traps them with silver. Sold them to Ishmaelites, they took the silver, now they put the silver cup, and he traps them with silver. This whole plan is to get them to reflect on what they did all those years ago. I don't think Joseph is vindictive. I think Joseph knows exactly what he's doing and he wants them to reflect and he wants them to think about this. Many years ago, you left a brother rot in prison. And it's the same Hebrew word used for that cistern, that well, that is used for the word prison in the book of Genesis. All those years ago, you let one of your own brothers rot in prison. Now what will you do when your youngest brother is threatened with being in prison? Now, he knows who they are. They don't yet know who he is. He's leading them to this self-reflection that they might finally own for themselves what they have done. And Judah, we don't have time to trace out Judah, but Judah has gone from the most awkward uh, passage to preach from in the Bible, Genesis 38, go read it sometime. A lot going on there, and Judah is not doing a lot of things right, to now being the leader among the brothers. And what we're seeing is the blessing in some ways is going to go with Joseph, but the ultimate promise line and the line of the Messiah is going to reside with Judah. Yes, this same Judah who slept with uh, his daughter-in-law, but oops, he thought it was a prostitute, This same Judah now comes to the defense and he's the one who voices for the first time the right answer to the question when you're confronted with your sin. God has found us out. You're right. What does it mean when we own our sin? Two things. You acknowledge wrong, that's first of all. You see, he confesses not just the silver cup, but the collective guilt for throwing Joseph into a pit and then selling him to Midianite traders. When he says in verse 16, God has found out the guilt of your servants, Judah doesn't really know how this silver cup got there. He doesn't know how that happened. I don't think he thinks that Benjamin actually did it. But what he understands is however this happened, maybe some, by some divine intervention, our sins have been found out. Our sins all these years ago of selling our brother into slavery, lying to our father about it, our jealous, our murderous anger, rage, God found it out. When is the last time you or I have said something like 
Judah's statement, God has found out the guilt of your servant. And you've thought to yourself, or you've said to God in a prayer, I have no one to blame. I will not protest. I will not accuse. I will not rationalize. I will not make excuses. What I did was wrong. I sinned. I'm guilty. Because you know what public apologies are usually like. You know, vetted by the lawyer. If anyone found offense at my ill-timed words, I want to express my sincerest apology. If you found offense. That is, if you got a problem, I'm sorry you got a problem. Judah doesn't do that. Don't do a halfway house. When confronted with your sin, are you willing to own your sin or are you just trying to manage the consequences of your sin? Because to own the sin usually goes counter to I got to manage all the consequences. of. Judah's not thinking about all the consequences yet. He's just saying, I own it. We did it. God found us out. And then the second thing you do when you own your sin is you make it right. It has to be more than just a speech. That means if you need to repay someone, you repay it. If there are consequences you need to face, you face it. If there's a conversation to have, you have it. Judah made things right at great cost to himself. If we turn back to chapter 37, 26 and 27, we'd find there that Judah was the one responsible for Joseph being sold into slavery in the first place. Now, it was sort of an act of mercy because they didn't kill him, but Judah was the brother most responsible for Joseph being sold into slavery. From that Judah to this Judah, he's a changed man. And now, the same man who sold Joseph into slavery offers to be Joseph's slave in order that Benjamin might come free. If we had time to read this speech, one of the longest speeches in the whole book of Genesis, you would find that what Judah says in verse 30 through 34 is, please, my father will die if Benjamin doesn't come back. So would you let me stay in the prison for the sake of my brother, Benjamin? He is willing to become the slave that Benjamin might go free. He engineered the selling off of Benjamin. The brothers were envious and spiteful. They're the selling off of Joseph, and now he is contrite and generous. Starting at verse 16, Judah gives the longest speech in the entire book of Genesis. It is a masterful speech. He owns his sin, and more than that, he asks for mercy And that's what you need to know. When you own your sin, there is grace for your sin. There there are two key words. We won't read through these verses, but there's two key words. One is servant. In his speech, he uses the word servant 10 times, and the other is father. Judah starts the speech by mentioning his father, and he ends the speech with father. All told, he uses the word, here's another good number, 14, two times seven. He uses the word father 14 times times. What he's doing, he's appealing to Joseph's charity. He doesn't yet know that he's talking to the man who has the same father he has, but he's hoping that he will be gracious to them, let Benjamin live for the sake of their aged father. 
So in this masterful speech, 10 times he says, I'm your servant, I'm your servant. And then 14 times he's saying, if not for us, because we're sinners, for the sake of my father, you don't want my father to die, do you? He's appealing to the generosity that he hopes is in Joseph's heart. Judah was guilty. Millennia later will come one called a lion of the tribe of Judah, who was not guilty. And how much more then was Jesus' sacrifice than Judah? Because Jesus, as the son of Judah, says, for the sake of pleasing my father, for the sake of my father, I will be the substitute for your sin. I will be his substitute. Judah even offers to remain as a slave. It's the first time, this is the first time in the Bible that one man offers his life in exchange for another. Which is why we're told that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect except for sin. And if Judah could be a substitute for Benjamin, how much more can Jesus be a substitute for our sin? This is the glorious paradox of Christianity. If you pretend your sin doesn't exist, it will haunt you all your life. And if you're willing to own your sin, Jesus will take it from you. This is how people change. Yes, there's all sorts of things, the power of the Spirit, the Word, the Gospel. This is how people change. And you and I need to see it in our own lives, and we need to help people see it in their lives. They come face to face. And and our world tells us just call them a mistake, a growth edge, a learning curve. Uh, I had, uh, my elders were doing my performance review, and they said, uh, they had a category, over-reliance on my strengths. I said, guys, that's really nice. Isn't that a weakness? Maybe even, hopefully not, over, we have all these euphemisms. When you, when you move away from the strong language of the Bible, that, that language is there for a reason. Sin, transgression, iniquity, evil, wickedness. We'd much prefer to say brokenness, mistakes, uh, off track, wrestling, struggling. But that language is there for a reason because you need to own it and I need to own it. To sin against a holy God. And until I say, like Judah, oh God, you found me out. There's no clean conscience, there's no forgiveness, and there's no transformation. I just leave you with this question, which I ask myself frequently. If you wonder, you feel like you're stuck, you're just the same person, you just you can't change. And I get it, there's addictions, there's patterns, that they're hard to change. But if, if you're stuck, ask yourself this. When's the last time I've really owned my sin? And maybe for you, you're saying, look, I do that every day, Pastor. I feel terrible about my sin and I'm still stuck. I, I get that happens. But for so many of us in the church, it's that hard point of staring at it right there and saying, it's not someone else's fault. It's not because I didn't get loved enough as a child. It's not, the, it's not the government. It's not because of the color of my skin. Yeah, all of that matters and people 
can oppress us. But this sin right here, this is my fault, and I did it. And you, God, have been gracious enough to show me my sin, and now will you be gracious to forgive me? Change does not happen until you see that you need to change, until you own your sin. And so as we engage this world with the mission of the church, which is to proclaim this good news of Christ, know that the grace that saves a wretch like me is also the grace to transform us and to change us and to lead us home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks for your word, all of your kindness to us. We thank you that when you give us Christ, you do not give us half a Christ. When you give us grace, you do not give us truncated grace. You give us grace to save us and grace to change us. Work in our lives. We dare to pray that prayer which you always seem to answer, that you would show us our sin. And in showing us our sin, would you then with even greater glory show us our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. We hope and pray this content was encouraging for you. For more information about our annual conference, visit us online at RedeemerDetroit.com.